Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this podcast, we talk about infrastructure as code. Uh, and we do it with a Kubernetes filter. So the beginning of this call, we're actually doing a check-in on KubeCon, which had just ended, and VMware, which had also just wrapped up. And both of those are very relevant in our discussion and considerations for infrastructure as code. And so we build on those systems in the process of looking for how do we build sustainable automation and operations. And we get to some really interesting places. Stay tuned through the whole thing. I know you will enjoy it. I would be interested before we roll into the infrastructure as code topic, um, if there were any takeaways that people had from KubeCon. Um, and I, I'm happy to talk about VMworld too. I, I actually paid more attention to that than I did KubeCon. So I had some really great conversations. Uh, KubeCon. Kubernetes has always been this abstracted thing that people have always said, oh, yes, yeah, solving really interesting problems in an enterprise that uh, I just never see exist because I'm more of that. I'm more, I, I still have my foot in the VMware community and we support a lot of uh, COTS, ISV stuff that is packaged software. It may come in the form of containers, but all of that is typically self-contained. So I've never had these application development workflow problems that Kubernetes solves. And uh, I was really taken aback by the number of teams, of end-user teams, even though only one-third of the attendees were end-user orgs. I was taken aback by the number of conversations that I had with people who are actually creating or uh who have created workflows where they're just coding and pushing code or on their way to that level of maturity where developers are just coding, pushing code and the machine of, you know, infrastructure's code and, and uh, get, get ops and all of that is taking over and, 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 and publishing code. I was, it's way more advanced or way more prevalent in that community than I thought it would be. Well, Perhaps a note on that is that it's it's not so much the developers, I believe, that are driving Kubernetes because they really don't care where to run their, their containers, whether it's in Docker or Kubernetes. But it's the it's the sysadmins and the SREs who are pushing for it <laughs> because managing your workloads in Kubernetes is more predictable than managing uh, a, a fleet of uh, of VMs or or, or, or a fleet of uh, Docker hosts. It's the, it's the orchestration aspect that's uh, um, the attractive part there. When people are doing that, are they how dynamic is is the environment? Because I could see building that pipeline, pushing to Kubernetes, and rolling your containers. Is that include the setting up, you know, publishing the app, load balancers, all the DNS infrastructure certificates, like that also part of it, or is it? Is, yeah, is so it just... I asked that, it's funny, because I came to that same kind of question. And what I'm, what I discovered, like the most mature example of this, and I, you know, I asked, well, how do you, 
obviously you, I can't just simply write code and hit publish. I have to make some decisions and they have done that. They've uh, put t-shirt sizes and said, Hey, you know what? Do you need a load balancer? And they made opinionated decisions for the oper- on the operations side of it to simplify the process. And they haven't excluded developers who want more control. So they do have primitives. So for developers who want, who understand the platform and they want, uh, they want to make specific decisions around, you know, number of replicas, blah, 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 blah. The, they, they've fully given that capability to, uh, the developer, it may not be in the same primitives that Kubernetes that you think of it in Kubernetes. It's unique to their landscape and environment. I that it makes sense. It still sounds like the development teams, not the ops teams. But maybe I'm. Yeah. So it's a. It's funny because it's an ops team filled with developers. Platform engineering teams is a lot of what, who are running the uh, Kubernetes clusters and acting as kind of your traditional sysadmins, but are really actually focused on building out platforms, product platforms for their developers. Um, so in a lot of ways, acting almost as a, a full-on internal software development organization for enabling developers to just write codes, essentially. Yeah, the, the, in this case, they call the platform team a developer experience team. So their whole job okay. was a bunch of SREs who were focused on making the developer experience as simple as possible. So or it's a, as possible. a good term, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, ultimately, that that is that is the, the goal of, Dev, of DevOps, right? Bringing dev teams and, 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 and the, the SRE and, and, and platform teams uh, closer together, um, tearing down the, the barriers for the developers to be able to, to say, this is what I want, and minimizing the, the, amount, the amount of work necessary uh, or min- minimizing the, the amount of work thrown over the fence necessary. Yeah, they found where they fail. They they measure fail, success failure. If a developer is spending time, uh, the, any time, the more time a developer uh, spends fussing with the platform, the more the the less likely they are succeeding as a team. So even from the local experience, if they have if a developer has to figure out how to get a local container or Docker environment up on their laptop, then as a developer experience team, they are failing. That's not something that developers should be worried about. They should be worried about writing code and not getting the platform in alignment with uh, their CI/CD process. Exactly. And that and and you felt like that was the themes that emerged of, of KubeCon? Well, that was the conversations I was having. The bigger themes was actually around application, uh, well, it was around security, uh, around security specifically. Uh, uh, supply chain uh, security. What was that? Supply chain security. Yeah, supply chain security was a uh, huge topic throughout the conference. Huh. 
and you know, and one of those things I didn't think about until I went to the conference is, you know, it's open source is me and Rob getting together and doing a project. And then upstream, that project gets, you know, used in a, a piece of commercial software. How do you continue to validate that Keith and Rob are the ones that signed the code and delivered the code downstream? So it's, it's really it, it is it is a really complex problem. You know, you get into identity and people in open source don't want to necessarily have their personal identity tied to code and it, it's it's a very complex problem that i don't fully appreciate yet it i mean it, it's something that that a lot of people saw coming after solar winds that uh when it it, yeah. it it was it wasn't viable anymore to 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 ignore it um and it had been ignored for a long time um by uh, by, by upper management uh, and uh, and by by companies that were, they were just trying to to be as agile as possible. Unfortunately, when when when, when velocity is your key metric, security tends to suffer. So, in a sense, this is a knee jerk reaction to that. Um, it was necessary, but. Um, I mean, it, it it's very much uh, a reactionary uh, event and, and not a proactive one. That's really cool. What were the themes you saw in the VM world? <laughs> developer, developer, developer. VMware is is very. Uh, uh, singly focused on moving up the stack and engaging in the developer experience. So uh, the my interaction was not with a lot of end users doing VMworld because it's virtual and it's hard for me to interact with end users in a different way than I normally do. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of my tweets were responded to via D DM from executives in VMware. Mm -hmm. And the reply was pushback of this, this perception that their multi-cloud strategy is only uh, VMware vSphere across multiple clouds and that they are a grown-up developer-focused uh, company. And I don't, I don't know if I intuitively get that yet. Uh, I, I understand the reason why they want to push that, but I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's real. I I think your skepticism is is valid. Um, yeah, I mean they're 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 certainly all in on the Kubernetes side, pivotal side. They've got some multi cloud story um, with these things, and they're one of the few vendors that's actually of sufficient scale with software that you could use in multiple clouds. I, I don't know if that translates into it being a multi-cloud story yet, but at least you could, you know, use VMware components in a whole bunch of different clouds. Yeah, I forget the term that they used, but it was a, uh, I think it was multi-cloud services. So they actually have a proper umbrella name of it. And went, but when I went to search via the 
the content catalog for that term, uh, multi-cloud services, I think is the, the umbrella term that they're using. And when I went to search the content catalog, there was no single session that talked about that overall strategy. And I think a top, if we, you know, kind of bring it up from not just VMware thing, like, is there, is there a vendor that, you know, kind of we can trust, whether it's, you know, OpenShift or VMware or Microsoft or even Google that has a proper multi-cloud framework that we can actually apply uh, at this point? I don't, I don't, I don't feel like we do because I, I don't know if we even know what that is. It's, 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 I was just going to ask that, Keith, is what does that, does that mean, multi-cloud? Uh, are they federated? Are they uh, maintaining synchronized control planes? It's kind of a loaded term, right? Well, and that, and I think, David, you, you're driving home one of the things that I've deemed, not just VMware on, but all of these kind of multi-cloud vendors on. When I, when I think of like security policy and I want to implement it across multiple clouds, I can't deploy NSX in every cloud. That's, that doesn't solve my problem for the, the very types of, of workloads and, and, use, and services that I use. What I need is a, is a solution that normalizes my policy, that extracts my policy and then goes to each control plane and applies that policy to each control plane in the way that that control plane works. And I, I don't even know if that's right, but that's what I want. And there's not a solution on a market that I can see that normalizes the, the cloud control plane in the way that multi-cloud can be useful from a traditional IT perspective. I, that, that's what Terraform attempts to do. I'm not uh, exactly 100% successful with it, but... Uh, what, what you're, it's what you're Overlay, we're talking overlay though, not under, right? It has to be an overlay. It has to be an, 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 a, infrastructure abstraction not it's not multi-cloud what keith is describing to me and actually this is the infrastructure as code topic i, I mean keith you, you literally just walked into to me what is the topic today which is you know what does that look like because it's infrastructure agnostic so processes that you define in one cloud can work in other clouds um and it's not human processes it's tech so i can define a, a workflow that works in Google, works in Amazon, works in bare metal, works in VMware. That's the, the goal. It, to me, that's what you just described. Um, what, what we've called distributed infrastructure as, as opposed to cloud with different control planes and different, well, it's not one control plane, it's different control planes. So each cloud would have a control plane, but the processes inside of that control plane would be reusable to other other infrastructures. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and and as you look at you know high level Kubernetes, and you look at high level, even even if you were all in and VMware Cloud on AWS, like there's nuance and there's problems, and there's there's those of you on on this call that have way more experience in this area than I do, and I'm really interested to kind of dig in and and, and understand some of that nuance and kind of where where some of this stuff falls apart, whereas where some of the stuff stuff is strong. 
I would I would ask is is it even even if you're all in on AWS, right? Region to region variation is still still something you're going to have to account for. It still is a there's a multi cloud or at least an automation portability component in that. Yeah. We just talked about it today, right? Rob is uh, will the hyperscalers get to the far edge? Will we be seeing DUs running on on hyperscalers? And from Beth's tone and other operators that were on the call, the answer is no. So um, you're going to have to have something that is a controller of controllers to be able to to do this kind of orchestration, right? Because at some point. AWS stops, right? Some point at the edge, it stops, and the DU is running on some kind of fabric that you need to have interrupt between both, right? And I think Dave, you're hitting a key point here. I'm not like I, I love the niftiness of a AWS outpost, and they're they're cool solutions. However, <laughs> once you put something out of a controlled environment into in this case, the edge is the data center into the edge and you you introduce a customer's network and environment into it. AWS, like AWS big breaks. You, they can't give you the same SLAs they could give you when they're in the AWS data center. So whether it's the edge proper, you know, the, the OT, OEM, type of edge, or if it's the edge data center and we're thinking about cloud control plane, mm. how do we as solution providers and solution architects think about, you know, where does the one control plane in, another one start, and when to use abstractions from one into the other. So as we're thinking about infrastructure <laughs> as code, not all infrastructure as code is equal. Uh, definitely agree, but I'm interested in, for you, uh, so, <laughs> um, I have two, one thing that the, the idea of having multiple control planes, I want to come back to, but I I'm interested in digging into why, how you're saying not all infrastructure is code is equal. I want to make sure I'm, I'm, you and I are talking about the same thing when I agree with you. I'm assuming that that was his doorbell. Ah, it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, while there's a little, maybe I'll ask my two cents. Uh, going back to what we were talking about before with Kubernetes, um, one of the nice things about Kubernetes is that as long as you stick to the same version, um, once you once you're running your 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 code on it on, on Kubernetes. Uh, it is uh, significantly more portable than than if you base your infrastructure as being just a cloud provider. So you're you still need to have cloud provider specific tooling to spin up your clusters, whether it's AKS or EKS or GKE or docs or or any other Kubernetes as a service uh, offering. Uh, but once you're there, you have a great deal of uh, 
of normalization between how you deploy your things. Um, that the only hmm. the only main things that I can think of where uh, where it differs rather majorly is is a is at the edge of Kubernetes, things like uh, DNS and, and load balancing and uh, or, or ingress and, and so on. Although for a lot of those, I mean, what, what about storage or database or um, you know block or file? I mean, do, do those things factor in, or have Kubernetes uh, ecosystem components been able to abstract out some of that variation too? I would say that Maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah. I would say the Pareto principle uh, applies. <laughs> so, ninety percent of, of of what you do is is normalized. Um, as long as you, as long as the default storage provider is sufficient, and you're fine with, with most cloud providers. Uh, if you if you need to to start provisioning specific storage, uh, whether that's high performance or, or high permanence or, or anything else, uh, then you still got your normalization inside Kubernetes, but you, but again, you, you have that edge component there where, where you need to have uh, a, a Google-specific uh, way of, of requesting a particular storage provider or Amazon-specific way or, or IBM-specific way or Oracle or whatever. Uh, database is it's more or less the same as well. Like uh, at, at mm. the, the developer only cares that, that, you, that you're giving them uh, an, an endpoint to connect to. Uh, the, the, yeah. the major differences between cloud providers uh, end up being with credential management. Uh, like uh, whether you use uh, IAM or, or workload identities or, or or whatever your cloud product has available to to basically have uh, credential less access to just by, by using like zero trust or or whether you need to still provide the credentials to the application itself. Uh, but to to a degree that that is still. You're still able to normalize it. it. Like if you standardize on 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 providing credentials to the application as secrets, uh, then that application developer doesn't care what the content of the secret is as long as it's got the right keys. So and, we and found I, go ahead. Go ahead. We found similar when we did our VMware Cloud study. Like vSphere is vSphere. Whether you know is vSphere running on premises or vSphere running in AWS, you know uh, the the vSphere web client is the vSphere web client. However, think about how you expose a public IP address on premises versus how you expose a public IP address in AWS versus how you do it in Google Cloud versus how you do it in uh, Azure. Anywhere, everywhere is different. Everywhere is different. <laughs> And we ran into like this simple, like operations problem, like the from a, you know, the, the VMware solution is cool and that it's basically a SaaS offer. I'm getting vSphere and I get VMs, and I, me as the operator, I'm uh, as a data center operator, I'm getting a very similar experience that we're trying to give developers, and when it comes to Kubernetes. 
it's when we need to go beyond that is when we need to have the equivalent of an SRE or operator say, oh, this integration has to be created so that when I go to expose a VM to the public internet, that it is a similar process across the board. That maturity isn't there yet. When you talk to VMware, they believe that that maturity comes not via uh, improving the vSphere control plane, but in improving the Kubernetes control plane. So when they solve it for Kubernetes, they'll then be able to take the namespaces from Kubernetes, apply that to vSphere, and, sol- and solve it for vSphere. Well, and to an extent, the fact that Kubernetes is sort of a common deployment model allows you to then focus on the things that are actually value-added differences. So, right, I mean, it's not about eliminating complexity, it's about managing it. And so what we're, what we're describing here is, you know, hey, I, if, I have, if my team knows how to use Kubernetes and my processes know how to use Kubernetes and 90% of my use cases, I know how to handle wherever I go, that's a huge win compared to the alternative. So, right? so even if it's even if it's sixty percent, even if you know sixty percent is a big win. So me and Martez talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I got a, the podcast is in the can; it will get published in the next few weeks or so. But it's the same idea of uh, the problems that we run into with the network stack as we build abstraction on top of abstraction on top of abstraction that there's these quote-unquote reliable contracts between the different layers of extraction that aren't very reliable contracts. And so, you know, to get the latency uh, and why, you know, uh, storage drivers and Linux are horrible, to get all of that, just the, the fact that I can't reliably say that I'm going to do, I'm building these, systems on top of systems and I, and they're not exactly reliable systems. And, and my fear of Kubernetes is that it's moving so fast that we're going to end up building these abstractions and these contracts that are not, are not fully thought out con- contracts. Uh, yes and no. To, to a degree, Kubernetes, I think they, they did the smart thing by saying here is an interface for uh, for providing such an abstraction with the with your own definitions, like with essentially the operator framework, um, and for and for for various other components like storage network, all, they also have a common interface where, as a third party provider, you you can write your plugin. That, that interacts with Kubernetes natively and, and provides your own opinionated implementation. Um, part of the, the 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 thing though also is there there is only so much where you can abstract and automate it uh, before you run into other issues that that, that are not performance but are that are human issues. I mean, we were just talking about uh, supply chain security, uh, and and when we bring this to to say that the management of like the of the the, the ingress or the or the load balancer, yes, we 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 haven't fully automated it, but but should we actually fully automated it? Uh, 
I'll, I'll admit it because because then we put uh, we put our workloads at a higher risk as well. Uh, so in some cases, it might be desirable to have it fully automated. In some cases, it's it's preferable to have it uh, supervised. Uh, so the the I, I don't want to say brilliance, but but I, I'm I, I'm failing to think of, of a different word for it. But so so I'm going to use it for now. So the brilliance of Kubernetes is that it allows the cluster managers, the the SREs or the the, the DevOps engineers, to pick and choose which of these contracts they want to automate or not via the operator framework. It it and and you're right, Keith, that, that there there is a, a risk of this becoming a, a dog's breakfast with with various different different operator frameworks going in multiple directions. But in the end it's it's something that still lets you set up an opinionated environment in a composable and reproducible manner. Makes sense. I mean, it's 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 definitely uh, we saw this in the container orchestration war, right? There's a sweet spot that Kubernetes was was in. It, you know, it wasn't. It was more complex than Swarm and more configurable, and less complex and less configurable than Mesos. Um, and so that that sweet spot was important. Um, and what you're describing, I think, with the, some of the CRD pattern. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm not as big a fan of what I'm watching going on with operators, but um, but maybe that'll evolve over time. But I mean, I don't think it will. I think the operators end up getting us back in the the same sort of pattern we have now with, let's say, a, a Terraform or a Puppet, where yes, I have that that single language to define things, but literally trying to to normalize across, let's say, cloud providers is still challenging. Because one of the things I think that's often looked past, at least from the initial investigation or evaluation, is how much um, context is required to, let's say, go through all of the different options for deployment of networking or storage to GCP or networking storage to AWS. Even though it's all all defined in Kubernetes YAML code, it's still those, those details that end up taking you a, a week to figure out why it's not working exactly. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, yes and no. Um, I I I think that the operators serve a rather crucial uh, function in 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 the ecosystem in that they allow application developers, not platform developers, to um, to encapsulate expert knowledge. So. Look at, for example, the, the Elasticsearch operator, which I, I, I personally think is brilliant because with a single CRD, you can set up a self-maintaining, self-upgrading Elasticsearch cluster. Uh, and if, if you've ever tried, if you've ever had the misfortune of, of, of having to manage one of those yourself, you, you realize how, what a titanic well, amount of work uh, is uh, is involved in that. Mm -hmm. 
So, so, so that's that's where the beauty of, of the operator uh, comes comes in, where that it not only allows the, the the platform developers like the storage providers, the network providers to 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 provide their opinionated tools, but also the application providers. So it, it it's a it's in a sense similar to the AWS marketplace, where mm-hmm. you when the marketplace you you it's basically got two click kind of thing. Your application gets spun up on a VM. It's hosted on your infrastructure, but it's deployed with the application developer's knowledge. Uh, the operator pattern does the same thing, but on your cluster. Yeah, so, I def- definitely see the value from yeah. a, a software vendor standpoint and even the potential to bring the idea of more as a services offerings, whether it's object storage or databases as a service to, to on-prem, utilizing operators in Kubernetes. So I def- definitely see the, the value. I think it just like every, pretty much everything in life can have that, that double-edged sword effect. Absolutely, I, yeah. But, but in those, in the operators, and this is, this to me is part of, and it, this is actually, once again, back, it is an infrastructure as code question, right? It, is the operator a thin shim in front of a much more sophisticated, you know, maintained deployment infrastructure? Or is it, is it actually, you know, which it has to be because operators are really just a, 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 a object interface to a service that then does work. And so that service is instantiating the logic that you're describing here. And in a lot of the operators I've seen are really front ends for other services that then do the work that have their own, you know, you know, they, they're, it's the operator itself is just, is a standardized interface. Which yeah, is that's why I'm never good. worried about my job going away. The, <laughs> you know, the, again, I, I used to think so naively and that's not, not too long ago. It's maybe only within the next few, last few years that I've realized that, you, there, there are no simple problems. I mean, solutions to complex problems. And the thing, I don't know if it was on this channel. I don't think it was on this channel, but we uh, talking talking to somebody from SpaceX. Well, maybe it was on this. Uh, uh, and they were talking about uh, the process they used before they went down any solution, but they were specifically talking about Kubernetes and whether or not they should adopt Kubernetes. And I think it goes back to this like intentional architecture around infrastructure as code. Like what, what is the thing we want abstract around? Like what is the controller of controllers? Having that opinionated view and not kind of floating in between. Like, are we going to abstract as operators? Are we gonna abstract on a closed source product uh, solution? And then just, you know, integrating stuff around that. And I think it, 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 the answer to that question just becomes around the operator question just becomes what is your philosophy about abstractions and where to abstract? That is uh, insightful. Huh. Yeah. Where to abstract? I mean, so it, would you say even that? Like 
you know, an operator that's interfacing to another platform that then sets stuff up would be that's an that is an abstraction boundary. So the setup becomes an abstraction boundary, or the infrastructure becomes an abstraction so boundary. Then it becomes a question of am I even using a operator? Is the operator the correct way to to approach the problem in my environment? Because at the end of the day, when it breaks, somebody has to troubleshoot it. So do I have a guy uh, troubleshooting Terraform? And I may have a guy troubleshooting Terraform in a operator or some other, some orchestration layer. I have somebody troubleshooting some orchestration layer. Where do I want the deep expertise in? Yes, solving it with Terraform may not have been the most optimal solution, but it may have been the most supportable solution in my environment. I go to companies that still have HPUX and AIX, not because it's the best technology that they can deploy the solution on, but it's the most optimal technology that they can support. So I think it becomes, you know, what's the most optimal technology versus the the, the one that you can support. What's the MVP? Yep. Well, the MVP becomes the challenge because uh, on, on various automation projects I've worked on, um, it becomes what's the what's the least elegant solution I can create? Uh, but then you run into the challenge of the moment you, in a lot of scenarios, you step out of that first use case that was clearly defined. The, the solution starts to, to show its brittleness. Mm. Uh, and so that, that's where we get into the quickly into the over-engineering of before time, do I factor in all the, the 30,000 possibilities of what it could do? Or do I focus in on maybe the, the five that are fully defined it's yeah. a balance because if you, if you, because we see this a lot, people solve the problem that's immediately in front of them. Um, and then the next problem comes along and they, they start incurring technical debt to fix that one next solution and the next one. And by the time you get to the fifth, you've, you know, you're now, you're now at something that's not sustainable for any of the five solutions, let alone something that comes forward. Um, and I, I see that a lot as an ops pattern. Um, so it, it's there's definitely a balance between get it done and and sustain something. Yeah, I think that's where, where we're at with some of the the operator patterns and even some of the the broader infrastructure as code is. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think we're still in a even though it's been around for some time. I think we're still in a lot of ways in a, a maturity state where it's it, developing those best practices and what those look like, obviously across organizations. Yeah. I, that you're hitting the key points to me because there's a, and I, we saw this like with Ansible stuff that just made makes my head explode. Where you know you might have a a playbook that looks very similar to somebody else's playbook, but you're not share it's not shareable. You're not reusing it. It's not decomposable. So now you have you know every person who picks up that playbook has a has their own their own fork of it, um, and the the tools don't encourage convergence back. Um, which is right. If if I was thinking infrastructure as code, that that multi-party sharing and reuse of libraries and things like that needs to be a central part of the infrastructure as code story. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's the priority in how the tools are built. Well, I think in some ways part of it is need to get to the concept of libraries. Have to start building those libraries and saying these are libraries. 
instead of saying, well, yeah, we, we got this code snippet or I've got this cool tool. Instead of calling it a tool, it's like, is it really just part of a library uh, that should work everywhere and uh, be composed, uh, be used for composability? Well, that that's the, the interesting part of a Pulumi, right? And, and uh, that's the direction that they went down to. They, they, they created libraries for various programming languages and managing your infrastructure with Pulumi is literally writing code. Yeah. I love that uh, that parallel. Like, what other code primitives are we not considering when we throw around the term infrastructure as code? You know, what's a... The library is a great example. What's a method that, you know, what's a method that would be commonly accepted in a modern infrastructure as code language? Or even what's the infrastructure as code language? Like what, what, it, it, this is really code. What, what are the languages? What are the methods? What are the libraries? What are the, the primitives? What are the, the basic computer science primitives for a language? Simple things like arrays, databases. <laughs> it, it isn't it isn't i mean for the stuff that we're doing um the infrastructure right our we we actually work really hard to avoid creating a new dsl because that doesn't seem very useful although we end up with golang templates um as a dsl we end up with bash as a as a as a language or python if that's the usable thing or terraform or answer like for us the goal isn't how isn't isn't the tools, and this is actually Keith. When when you had made a comment earlier that I wanted to dig in on, which is where the tools where the tools are are hard. What what we find is that there's an element here which is the context of the operation, and some tools like Terraform work really well in in one context, like dealing with a cloud API from outside of the cloud. And there's other things that work well inside of a context like Ansible, where you're inside of a machine doing configuration work. And both of those tools have ways to do, they, they have ways to do some overlap with the other tools, but they're they're really painful to use um, in those in those modes. And it's because there's literally different contexts. So when we build an infrastructure as code, um, uh, components, the componentry for it, which for us is like templates and tasks and stages and workflows that all get chained together and then all version controlled and managed as, as immutable artifacts that, that I mean, makes the infrastructure as code. But part of doing that well is actually using a tool that does what it does in context and then taking data out of that and then passing it to another tool that does it in context. Um, in a, maybe a different context, and yeah, so it's the, the the missing thing to me is that that I've got Terraform or Ansible or Pulumi or something like that, but actually crossing the context and creating a workflow across of them is a is a missing element. So if you if you back, I love the idea of, of looking at it as as code and coding languages and all of that. If you look back, you know, at the very beginning, we didn't even have procedures, right? It was just code with go-tos and it was gross. We added procedures, then we added inheritance, and, you know, that encapsulation provided us with this abstraction. Um, you know, where are we in that 
in that kind of life cycle. And and I actually, think that, I would. I would yeah. ask uh, if you, it's all right. I'll, let me ask a different question. What mm -hmm. what keeps us from having like an HTTP module that you can just plug in and say like, I, everybody has a web server. Here's an HTTP module. I'm just going to require it, and I don't now. I'm not going to write it. If I actually need a better HTTP module, I have incentives to improve the HTTP module, not um, not re not write my own port eighty open whatever. But what keeps us in infrastructure from that module being reusable? Right, uh, set, you know, set up a Elasticsearch. Yeah, you. This is a fascinating conversation. I got to look to see if I already bought a Manning book that talks about a lot of this. I'm, I'm, I'm stacking up Manning books without ever reading any of them. Sleeping with them under your pillow works too. Exactly. The. Uh, <clears throat> But if I were to like do a modern PhD program, if I was to literally go at the, uh, I've, I've always had this challenge of if I were to pursue a PhD, I don't know what area of research I want, but this would be really interesting because we're asking fundamental computer science questions that are not well defined in this area of expertise. Like, Rob, I really love your point that you're using the right tool for the right context. Uh -huh. So in my mind, a computer uh, infrastructure is cold. A infrastructure is cold language isn't down to whether or not I'm using Ansible versus Python versus something for this function. That's those are just a collection of modules or libraries within a language, within a higher language, the infrastructure is code language. That's, like what does it mean to have an infrastructure is code language? And and the context, this is this was the big aha for, for me was the context that you're working in is part of that conversation. That that if like if you're like, oh I've got Terraform now I can I've got infrastructure as code and that's all I needed. I'm like, well what about orchestration what about monitoring systems what about configuration and terraform doesn't have stories for that uh, there's a question also whether whether it should or not uh i am personally in in, in the camp of it, it should not terraform should be good at what it does which is um provisioning infrastructure uh, but then when, when, you, when we come down to, let's say, deployment with, within a VM or so, I, my opinion is that at that point, Terraform should hand over to the, should hand over the task to the next tool, whether that's cloud in it mm -hmm. or Ansible or, or, or whatever. I strongly, strongly agree with you. Yes. The challenge you're going to have is some of the, the vested interest organizations have. Um, so I, I see it quite often is the, uh, the tools rationalization conversation in the enterprise uh, every handful of years where it's like, we've got too many tools, particularly from a, a licensing standpoint. So we wanna, we wanna rationalize the tools. Can you use Terraform to do some of the things Ansible does? Oh, sure. Okay, well, we'll get rid of Ansible and we'll try to use Terraform to do everything. Uh, you got some of that going on. You also have some scenarios where um, the content that's been produced sort of hacks at the idea of using a tool that's not appropriate for certain scenarios. One of the, the, the examples I commonly give is utilizing Jenkins for CD. Um, Jenkins isn't 
necessarily a CD tool, but you can you can kind of use the hammer and smash it and bend it to do CD. Um, but if it's good enough, people are going to use it for not necessarily its intended purpose. I yeah. love what yeah. you I've been I've been calling that infrastructure pipelines, by the way, that the CICD tools don't don't understand infrastructure and resources for infrastructure. And that there's a separate separate pipelining requirement outside of the CICD tool. Oh, that's a that's a whole conversation like orchestration, <laughs> like CICD, you know, you yes, you validate the code, but do we even have the capacity within the region to run that 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 code? Yeah, it's validated, but what does validation even means? It's not that doesn't mean anything when it comes to in the context of capacity and orchestration. To to be fair, also the the, the term CD has been kind of co-opted um, these days to to mean like all the way to application the deployment and, and, and readiness. Uh, initially, CD just meant continuous delivery of artifacts, like mm-hmm. yeah. putting them into your artifact repository, and then CD is done. But we've extended that now to, to go from the artifact repository to your actual infrastructure and, and deployment. And, and yeah, uh, Jenkins is, is, is not the greatest tool for that. So, a, well, and think, this is a modeling problem, right? Infrastructure is different than code and the linearity is different than, than code. So here's a uh, unpopular take. Has anybody taken a look at where Zool is at the moment? Uh, the only tool I know is the one from Ghostbusters. <laughs> Named after the same thing. That's the OpenStack uh, CI system. Yeah, and uh, we know that they just keep on keeping on and that they kind of mostly junk Jenkins quite a couple of few years ago because it wasn't doing it for them. Yeah, I... I still have a tendency to see um, the resource the resource lifecycle component for um, infrastructure is fundamentally different than the DI process, where you've got code, you replace code, it's an artifact. With resources, there's startup, bin down, right? Kubernetes does actually, it's one of the things that I think people underrepresent about Kubernetes strength is its ability to say, here's startup tasks, here's removal tasks, here's health checks that I can build in and then help create resilience in my application. Um, just the artifacts around that are a much bigger win than I think anybody thinks about anymore for Kubernetes. Um, but infrastructure, if you're building a cluster, you have very similar um, concerns and constraints around building infrastructure up in, in those ways and then propagating keys. And then there's order of operations. You can't build a key until you actually have the name of the machine and its IP address. So there's like order sequence of operation stuff that has to be accounted for. That's to me, that's the infrastructure is code. Like it's not just, Hey, I need a machine. Can you go build a machine? It's, can I go build a machine? You know, it may let it get ready when it's ready, connect it into a cluster, propagate the secrets of that cluster to the new system or tear it down and make sure there's enough resources to handle the, you know, that we haven't torn down the cluster in a way that destroys the cluster. If I was trying to keep it viable, um, all, right, all that stuff has, that has to be 
standardized. And I think, plus to your point, it's like if I can give you a way that does it for a thing in a repeatable way, company to company, site to site, I've saved, you know, that's good. That's amazing. But again, it, it, uh, as, we, as we also discussed, it, it, it varies greatly from company to company, which is why it's hard to abstract it up to the, the two-click operation kind of thing. Uh, and, and this is, again, where I agree with Keith is that our jobs are, are not going away anytime soon because we, we are responsible for architecting uh, and, and composing the, these tools into something that is usable by the enterprise. Fair enough. Fair enough. We, we are at the top of the hour, so I'm, I, I actually think that's a good note to go out on. All right, one. It was a great conversation. It was a real pleasure. A lot of good voices. I appreciate everybody's uh, coming in and opinions. Talk to you all either on Thursday or next Tuesday. Good times. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. What a great conversation about infrastructure as code. Um, not because we had simple answers, but because I think we really laid out some of the challenges and problems. Uh, there's no doubt that Kubernetes is influencing and helping people build more productive systems. But there's a lot going on around it that we really have to consider and think about. And I believe we really laid out some of those core questions. Uh, we will keep talking about infrastructure as code and the challenges that get created by the systems that we're building and the complexity of those systems. So please join us at the2030.cloud. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.